Sometimes I think he infected my body with unlovability, like a disease I can't shake, that he saw into me and determined that I was undesirable and went so far as to tell me so. Whenever I see the rider wait tarot card of the devil, I see him. His body is uncannily shaped like that century-old painting of the devil. He was the devil. He gave me a relationship beyond my wildest dreams, but he was lying about all of it. What an evil, horrible thing to do to another human being, I admit I still think about. Who pretends to be in love with you just to stand back and laugh at you and say, just kidding? I've survived, and I've even thrived. And the man I call my abuser did set me on a path that, I have to remind myself, made me stronger. And that led me to today's No Love Signs co-pilot, a friend I can't imagine not having in my life. Dr. Kelly Sundberg is the author of the memoir Goodbye Sweet Girl, A Story of Domestic Violence and Survival. She earned her PhD in creative nonfiction at Ohio University, and in the fall, she'll be an assistant professor at Ashland University in Ohio. Yay, Kelsey! Hi, Mo! <laughs> when I was dreaming up this podcast, the one episode that I really, really wanted to do was one called Dating After Abuse, and to do it with Kelly, because dating after abuse is hard, but not in the ways you might think. I recently tweeted that one of the unexpected triggers in dating after abuse is dating a nice, decent person. And that there are moments when I realize someone's treating me well or listening to me or valuing me that shake me to my core and remind me of how little that happened to me in that relationship. Kelly and I met in an online survivor support group a few years ago before her memoir was published. And our abuse stories are very different, but trauma is trauma. And I've certainly benefited from seeing her recovery happen in real time. Kelly, welcome. Thank you. And I have to say that I am a doctor but I am not a physician. And the reason I bring that up is because my ex-husband's friends apparently think I'm a physician, which I think my ex-husband tells them so that they think I have more money than I really do. Well, they're dumb, not only for believing that, but for staying friends with him. Yes, they are. Kelly, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Kelly's here in Portland for the AWP conference, like every other writer in the whole world. Um, Let's start with some my first question. Um, no one, I was hoping somebody would send in a letter. Nobody did, so I thought we would just have a conversation. Sounds good to me. Um, so my first question for you, Kelly, is what has been the hardest thing for you dating after leaving your abusive husband? I think for me, the hardest thing has been that I really have no idea what I want. So when I... Think of what a relationship that would look good would look like. I don't have a model. I don't have something to follow. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to find the right person when you don't even have any idea what that looks like. And so I think I've actually been really reserved and kind of withholding and kept myself from dating a lot. I do date, but I think I've done it in a sort of reserved fashion because always in the back of my mind is this idea that that I don't know what a good relationship looks like. Right. Um, 
I feel like I know what a good relationship looks like, or I think I did, although, you know, I was married to a guy that I would not call abusive by any stretch, but that was not really a good relationship. But, it, you know, he didn't, he didn't mess with my head, so I guess that's something. Um, and I went through a protracted period after, you know, I, I, I hooked up with my abuser, like, right after my divorce, and that was really bad timing, but he obviously got me in a really vulnerable state. Um, and, you know, it took me several years to, like, get to this point where I had worked through all the abuser stuff to, like, actually mourn my marriage. And it, I was really surprised that it hit me, like, three, four years later, like, oh, my gosh. And I had all this fear in my heart, like, what if that was my only relationship? What if I gave up a good enough man who, you know, never would have deliberately hurt me for that? Like, what did I do? So I went through this really strange period of mourning that relationship and being angry at myself and um it's only been recently that i've been able to pull out of that so that's well i think it's interesting that you bring up mourning because i think one of the things i struggled with getting out of an abusive marriage was that i felt like there wasn't a lot of space for me to grieve like everyone wanted me to be so happy that it was over and you know the thing that people say is well, you dodged a bullet or, well, no one told me I dodged a bullet because <laughs> I didn't dodge that bullet. No. But, but, or you're, you know, it's so great that you're out and it's good to focus on that. But at the same time, I, I loved my ex-husband and I felt like when I grieved that or when I was sad and it could have been in my head, but there was always this sense that people were judging me. For, for mourning the loss of something that was was clearly so flawed. Sure. But I don't think anyone can can move on from the end of something like that, the end of a relationship, if they don't really allow themselves to grieve. Right. And anyone who's read your memoir knows that you actually treat him very fairly. And you do say over and over again that you loved him and you tried so hard to keep the marriage together. And yeah. Well, and I did love him, and I still loved him when I left him. So it was it was very complicated for me. I think that a lot of people, by the time they leave their abusers, they've fallen out of love, and they've been ready for a while. But I wasn't ready for a while. He really gave me no choice because I I had realized that I just couldn't I couldn't have the life that I wanted with him. And also, my son was getting old enough that he was noticing. But I was still in love with him, and when I left. It felt like, it honestly felt like like breaking an addiction. Like I would want to call him or, or talk to him and I, I would use the term white knuckling through it because I'd just have to white knuckle through those impulses. And actually, when you said that you think you know what a good relationship looks like, I know what a good relationship looks like because I've seen my friends have good relationships. Mm -hmm. I don't know what a good relationship feels like. Right. And, and I think we get used to what we've felt in the past mm -hmm. and it, and it feels comfortable even if it was bad i mean there's a lot to be said for the fact that if you're used to bad stuff having things be bad suddenly becomes what's comfortable and it's tempting to duplicate it again because that's what feels familiar yeah absolutely i've looked back and at patterns of my own life and like wow that was really familiar oh i know i did that so that's absolutely true um, but getting to a point where I'm like able to like, you know, see that and then forgive myself has been a struggle. 
Yeah, I, it's hard because no one wants to be that person who continues to make the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we live in this country that's like founded on redemptive narratives where everyone's path is forward and they learn all the lessons in a chronological way and then they've arrived at some magical destination where they have all the answers. And for me, I feel like, you know, and I've done a lot of therapy and I've, I wrote a memoir. I've, I've examined my patterns and my issues and I'm pretty aware of what they are. I did not expect to be 41 and think like, oh, well, these are my patterns. I think I'm just going to dig my heels in and keep doing them. Sure. And and knowing what my patterns are hasn't made them magically disappear. Yeah. Mine neither. So is that even a sentence? Mine neither? Me neither. You know what I mean. I know what you mean. You totally know what I mean. Okay, let me see my, my notes here. Um, what have you noticed, like, in terms of, not, not just, like, post-abuse, but also, you know, getting older, being in your 40s, what, what sort of relationship needs have you been noticing have changed? So I think because I was married for nine years, we got married when I was um, 27 and divorced when I was 36. And uh, I think I lost a lot of my young dating years. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm dating now like a 28-year-old. And I I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. But it, it suddenly occurred to me that dating could be fun. And and so I, I date casually and I date frequently. And I haven't had anything that was necessarily really serious. But I've had a lot of fun with a lot of different types of people. And, you know, it would be nice to settle down with someone. But I think I missed some of those formative years where I discovered just what I liked. and. I uh, I have always been someone who was very monogamous, who got committed really fast, but I've actually really been enjoying just having fun and meeting a lot of different people. And I don't think at this point in my life, I really feel inclined to to settle down with, with one person. I mean, maybe if I meet the right person, mm-hmm. but the thought of that, I spent my early 20s thinking, I can't wait till I meet that person I spend the rest of my life with. And now I'm thinking, wow, I can't imagine meeting someone I don't want to spend the rest of my life with. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm totally, like, at a different point, I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do this thing. Let's settle down. Like, I'm totally ready for that now. But I've spent the last five years, like, recovering from the abuser and dating around Portland, uh, trying to be polyamorous, which I realized is not for me. Um, and I say that knowing that like there will be people out there who will be like, oh, that's what I've heard your abuser say about you, that he wasn't abusive. You just can't hang with polyamory. But I, I did actually give it a good faith effort with good faith people. Um, so he can suck it. Um, yeah, but now I'm ready to like just. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I think I could be there in a year. Yeah. I just think also, too, I'm having big life transitions because I'm moving yeah. and I'm. Uh, starting a new job. She got a tenure track job, everyone! Yay! So the thought of someone who could fit into my life the way it looks right now, that would have to be... It would be hard to find that. Absolutely. Have you had any, like, hard conversation? Has the the topic of your, your memoir or the abuse in general come up on dates or with people you're dating with? And how did you... 
deal with that? Because that's something that I've, I was kind of afraid of. So like right, right out of the gate, I started publishing these essays about what my abuser did to me. Um, and I did that with a little bit of fear that maybe some potential love interest would see that I was writing about that and decide that I was someone who uh, wrote things that were actually retaliatory and untrue and that uh, would assume the worst of me for wanting to publish these essays. Um, not that I actually care about that now or then, but it was something that crossed my mind that, that coming out with all that so publicly would have you know, driven somebody away. I mean, if anyone's thought that, they haven't said that to me. I don't tend to date other writers. Mm -hmm. My ex-husband was a writer, and I have a sort of knee-jerk reaction now to dating other writers. So I think I kind of date men who aren't really aware of the literary world or what that looks like and don't necessarily think to seek out the stuff that I've written. But no one has seemed to think, and I think because I did portray my ex-husband with love, I don't think that they tend to think that I write in a retaliatory way. I did have the one man that I dated that I really cared for a lot was a reader, but he didn't want to read anything I'd written, and he said that he didn't want to read anything that I'd written because it would make him feel sad. And, and it wasn't said with judgment, but what I've come to realize is that if you don't have a certain capacity to feel sad, then you can't you can't be my partner. Right. Because I live with a lot of regular sadness and trying to avoid sadness is is a recipe for abuse because I think too and something I've been thinking about a lot was when I was married, part of the reason I wasn't making the changes that I needed to make is because I was trying to avoid being sad. I was trying to avoid the grief of ending my marriage. I was trying to avoid being a single mom. I was trying to avoid being financially, um, being poor. And I was, spent my life thinking of all these things that I could avoid. And I wasn't thinking of what would look like the life I wanted. And now I feel like I really work hard to, instead of thinking about what I need to avoid, I think about what I want. And if I spend my life going for what I want, then I can recognize that maybe going for what I want is going to involve some temporary discomfort. And it's going to involve those things that I would prefer to avoid, but I can't get to the places I want to be without that. And so when I think about that man who didn't want to feel sad, he was never going to be open or vulnerable in a way that I needed him to be because he was trying to avoid being sad to the, at the expense of really connecting with me or understanding me. Right, yeah. I mean, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that like dating someone who would have negative feelings about what I had written or try to avoid what I had written was not gonna be the person for me. Um, the guy that I'm dating right now, the, the first thing he did when we sort of started talking about all that was go read my essay, The Cardigan, and then we talked about it. And I was like, wow, that's really, that's what I want. That's what I need. Like someone who can bear witness to that and not be freaked out. So yeah, I think that the men that I have dated who have gone and read my writing and not been freaked out, that's always a really good sign for me that they have the capacity to, to handle the intensity of the experience that I've had. Yeah. Reading afterwards? I try not to give advice after after having gone through such an abusive situation because I think one thing 
that survivors of of emotional or physical abuse learn is that we're taught from our abusers that we can't trust our own decisions. Yeah. And so if people come at us with advice, it's they're really not trusting us to make our own decisions. And so I really try to frame things as questions rather than advice because ultimately if I have a friend who's a survivor and she's moving on in another relationship, I think the best thing I can do is her friend is trust that she's capable of handling it. Doesn't mean I always feel that way. Um, and I will, if something looks really, really sketchy to me, I might say, as your friend, I'm just going to say this doesn't feel great to watch. But but I really, I don't believe in advice giving. <laughs> I mean, I guess I see this is a point where, where people are looking for advice. But I, I think the advice is to, if you've gotten out of an abusive relationship, Listen to your body and listen to how you feel when you're around the person. And if you think, man, it's kind of a bad sign that this guy's a 33-year-old weed dealer, then That's, maybe listen to that right. instead of going, well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think back, at, you know, with when I was dating my abuser about how my body was retaliating against it, how, like, I would have a sick stomach all the time or, like, we, I'd get sick a lot. Like, when I first moved to Portland, like, my body just broke down and I was like sick and had hives and had to go to the doctor all the time. And that was my body yelling at me, get out. And it took me far too long to listen. And Well, uh, I think our brains get kind of overridden because we have someone else's voice in our head all the time. Yeah. And it's hard to trust our own voices when someone's been talking over that for years. And so I do think listening to, listening to the way that your body reacts, like, if the person says something and you and you feel kind of ill, that that trust that because I think my body is quicker to pick up on red flags than my brain is. Well, my brain picks up on the red flags and then rationalizes them away, and I, I still have a magical ability of doing that. And I love to joke about stuff, and I'll joke about those red flags to my friends. Um, so I see them. I will say I did have one one man where there were a ton of red flags. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had, for example, a truck hitch of the Punisher. What? Yes, this is true. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, and I met him at the gym, and he was bodybuilding all the time, probably on steroids. It was bad. It was really bad. Yeah. And I thought, well, I can see the red flags with him, so therefore I can protect myself against them. And that was a completely flawed way of thinking. Seeing the red flags means run. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm safe because they're visible. Right. Because in my mind, like Caleb, my ex-husband's red flags were all very covert. And they weren't visible. And people wouldn't see them if they just met him, even now. And so I thought, well, this guy's safe because this guy just wears his red flags like a badge of honor. But he, he wasn't safer. He was just a different box of red flags. More of a like a vermilion then it's like a crayon red. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, you and I have had different experiences. I dated my abuser for a year and I get to, and then he's, he was gone from my life. Like I've had no contact with him for four and a half years. I've been able to practice no contact, but because you have a child with, with yours, you have sort of a, you can't cut contact and you still have sort of a, a view into his life, which I can only imagine is is pretty painful. 
Um, how how do you cope with seeing his life go on and and? I think the easiest way for me to cope with it is just that what I see is his life, which is that he's remarried. He just had his second child. Um, not second. He had a child with me, but he had his second child with his new wife in like two years. Um, I don't want that life. And I never would have wanted that life. And I feel really nothing but relief that that didn't end up being my life. I think part of the reason he was abusive to me was because he knew that I didn't want the life that he wanted. And abusers, they get frustrated. They want to control you. They want to be able to make you want what they want. And I tried to want what he wanted, but I didn't. And when I see his life, it's not appealing to me. But in the beginning, when he first got married, remarried, it was really hard because I felt like, oh, he's remarried and, and here I am. I'm still alone. It doesn't seem, I remember thinking it didn't seem fair Yeah. because he was the one who was abusive and I was the one who was still struggling. And I mean, abuse is, is so inherently unfair. And part of it is that it's going to be easier for the abuser to move on yeah. because they are not fucked up by what has happened to them. Nope. The one who ends up fucked up is the person who was abused. And and it sucks. And I, you know, it still sucks. But I do think that I would rather, I would rather be me than him. I would rather be me than his new wife. And ultimately, the person who's living better right now is me. I have no doubt about that. I have no doubt about that either. Yeah, I feel lucky in that I don't, like I, it would kill me to know who my abuser is abusing now. Like I would feel responsible for trying to dive in and save her, and I know I can't, and so I just. Well, and yeah. I tried. I mean, yeah. I did what a lot of women do in the beginning, and I reached out to her and I told her what he had done to me, and and she didn't believe me, and she had the natural response that a lot of women in those situations have, where she didn't not only didn't believe me but got angry and so i i think i had to try i think if i hadn't tried i would have lived with a lot of guilt but i tried and it didn't work and and i did the best i could yeah i, I tried with the one after me too but i'm it's been four years now and i'm sure there's been others and i don't know who they are and i don't well and i know yeah. that some people say like well don't even waste your time don't bother they're not going to listen I'm glad that I wasted my time, that I tried, because it wasn't necessarily even for her, just as much so that I I wouldn't, if something happens to her, I don't, I don't have to live with thinking, like, what if I had said something? What if I had tried? Because I did. Yeah. It didn't work, but I tried. Yeah. And, you, and, and I admire you for that. Like, I think that just shows that you are a kind person with good instincts, that you would you know, put yourself on the line like that for her. I don't think she sees it that I was way, gonna, but thank you. I was going to say, she definitely doesn't <laughs> see it that way. Um, yeah, I mean, you can go read um, Why Does He Do That by Lundy Bancroft to get the whole scoop on the way women who get together with abusers who are told that they are abusers but choose not to believe and then turn into ferocious stand-by-your-man caricatures. In the wake of all that, we don't need to get into that, but that it has been written about, and I I wrote a whole novel about that, <laughs> um, and I'm sort of dedicating myself to not thinking about it. Yet it's still a fascinating topic 
psychologically for me. So um, I don't know that I have any more questions for you. Is there anything else you want to add here? I think what um, something that we talk about dating after abuse and we, we all so often frame it as this really difficult, sad thing, because it can be, because so many people who have been abused end up in abusive relationships again. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see, you know, I do think it's important to talk about trauma reenactment, which is where someone ends up dating someone who has similar qualities to the person they were with before, because subconsciously you think that if you do it, if you do something different that time, this new person will respond in a way that that works and then the abused person can think okay well I made it work this time so I finally have control I finally have succeeded I've gained mastery over my own life Mm -hmm. so I think a little bit with me and 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 the punisher I was thinking like well this guy has all these red flags but maybe if I'm different this time and then things work out with him then I'll finally be safe because I finally did it right and of course, that doesn't work. It requires, you have to completely change the whole framework. You can't be looking at people who are similar to the last person and thinking things will be different. But, so I think that's something to focus on and I think it's hard. But I think what, what gets overlooked about dating after abuse is that there's like a great hope and possibility in it. And that when you are being abused, universal you there, there was, there was no hope. That was always going to be something that was only going to end in unhappiness. And I could have stayed with my ex-husband. He he never would have left me, although he now claims he left me, but he did not. He never would have left me. I could still be with him now, and I would be this shadow of myself, this unhappy, miserable shadow. And instead, I left him, and I grieved, and it was hard. But now I'm this like really happy... 41 year old who gets to date people who are nicer, who are more attractive, who are funnier than my ex-husband. And sure, I haven't found that one yet who's the right fit. But I think we overlook the fact that like there's so much hope in getting to date after abuse because you get to try over again and again. And it can be sad and frustrating. But if you think of each opportunity as a possibility, I think it can be really beautiful too. Yeah, I, I would I would advise listeners to sort of put away this idea that, oh, you're damaged and you need to be extra vigilant against letting it happen again. And, um, you know, you, you are you and you are actually a better you as you get older and as you sort of look back on your experiences. And so, you know, embrace with open arms this new frontier of dating you know, if it makes you happy. Well, and everyone's damaged. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I'm sorry, but but everyone's damaged regardless of if they've been in an abusive relationship with a partner or a parent or a boss or or maybe they're a narcissist. Right. <laughs> but we're all damaged in some way, and I think being vigilant of our damage is not necessarily the the answer. The answer is to be vulnerable. Yeah. Let's talk about your book. Um, it's been almost a year since it's came, come out, right? It has. Yeah. Um, what was it like writing that book for you? It's a really, if listener, you have to read this book. Like it's, it's just this beautifully lyrically written 
meditation on what happened to Kelly and how she got through it. And so highly recommend, but tell me about the process of writing it. Writing it was, um, I think we hear so much, so often the, the word cathartic Mm -hmm. when people talk about trauma literature and it was at points cathartic and at other points it felt like wound dwelling and it was hard. It felt relentless and hard and exhausting. And it was the hardest thing, besides leaving my marriage, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Because I really had to linger back in those spaces of what, I've, what I'd experienced. And one thing that, that I always say is that like writing about the abuse wasn't so hard, but writing about the loving moments, and I felt like it was really important to convey the loving moments, was really hard because I am inherently, I am just a big softy and I'm really loyal and I don't really fall out of love with people easily. I think there's always going to be a part of me that loves my ex-husband that that's able to separate the part of him that I loved from the part of him that was abusive. And it's easier if I don't think about that part. And when I was writing the book, I really had to think about it and it made me nostalgic in yeah. ways. Um, nostalgia is is just when you're nostalgic for something that almost broke you, you know, it's a bad place to be. But also writing the book was it was kind of beautiful because it it was I was taking this time that I had to take because I sold the book on a proposal taking this time to really think about what had happened to me and why it had happened. And it was kind of like taking a puzzle and trying to put all the pieces together and putting the pieces, these pieces from my childhood next to these pieces from my adult life and seeing how they fit and how they, they influenced each other. And I think that I'm much more emotionally intelligent and self-aware person after, after finishing a project like that. Yeah. What was the the legal vetting process like? The legal vetting was really intense. Um, Harper Collins hired a lawyer. She's a great lawyer. Um, actually, a very very kind woman. Uh, and she read the entire book, and then she sent me a letter that said, "Okay, can you here are the things I need you to substantiate." And it was really overwhelming because I thought I can't possibly substantiate all of that you know so much of what happens with abuse happens behind closed doors and then I talked to her and she was really kind and she she made it clear to me that she really just wanted to protect me and but what I discovered was that Caleb and I had not had uh, cell phones for most of our marriage and we had communicated a lot via email and I don't I don't delete emails. I I don't know why. I'm just that loser who has like 12,000 emails in my inbox. And so I entered his name into my search and all of these emails came up and it was it was just this huge documentation of what had happened between us, like conversations between us that were ha- that had happened via email. And he was saying things like, there was also a lot I had forgotten. Mm-hmm. But he said things like, you know, you've asked me not to hit you, but we have seven years of evidence that says I will. And I'm so sorry you've asked me not to hit you. I hope you never have to ask that again. And so he really basically admitted 
to everything. And I didn't keep those emails with the intention of using them against him someday. And then I had letters that he had written to me. And we also had this journal where my therapist had said, when things were pretty bad, she said, why don't you, instead of talking to each other, you write to him and he has a day to respond and you can communicate in writing. And so I would write to him and then he would write back. And you know, it's in our own handwriting. You can see what had happened. and. He was vicious. I was loving in what I had written to him, and he was vicious in his responses and cruel and cruelly honest about what he had done. And there was just, there's just, it was just, there's no denying that, that he did what he did. I know that he denies that he did what he did, and, and he, he thinks that the legal vetting, you know, I didn't call him and say, hey, this is how they legally vetted my book. So he has this idea that they didn't check, but they did. It was, and the legal vetting was very traumatizing. It was very triggering. And I spent like two days just in bed, just feeling, feeling exhausted. Uh, but in the end, I'm so glad that they were that rigorous because I have felt safe. And I felt safe in publishing the book and I felt safe since it was published. Yeah. I mean, thank you for going through that. I know that your book has helped a lot of a lot of readers who've gone through what you've gone through. So, you know, in a lot of ways that was an act of generosity for a lot of people that you don't even know. So Well, and I think it has helped a lot of readers. I know that because they reach out to me and I wanted to help readers, but ultimately I did the I did it to help myself because part of my frustration and part of my PTSD is that for so long, I, I'm just a really open person. I'm a storyteller. I'm an open person. I'll share anything with anybody pretty quickly. And when I was married, and he's very secretive in contrast, and when I was married, I got kind of sucked into his vortex of secrets because I was protecting him. I was protecting the marriage. I was protecting myself because I was so ashamed of what was happening to me that I didn't want to tell people. And secrets are just secrets are the, the source of shame and so for me as much as I wanted to help other people I think I just wanted to tell my story in its entirety to free myself of it because as long as it was this kind of secret I it I was never going to be free yeah I'm excited that you're here in Portland not only because it's great to see you Kelly but because like I we were when we were driving around southeast Portland yesterday I was like I kind of wanted to be like, that's where I was abused. And that's where he said this horrible shit. Yeah, thing to you me. did. You gave me the little kind of like Google map of. There is a Google map of Portland of my abuse. And I mostly stay out of that neighborhood. I, unless I have like a real reason to go down there. Like it's AWP and we're, there's good restaurants there. Um, I'll go down there. Well, but, and within uh, an hour of being here, I ran into one of Caleb's friends yeah. and got to be gracious which made me feel superior to him. Well, you are superior to him. And honestly, like I haven't run into my abuser in like two years now and he's left me alone and you know, it's fine. I still live here for a little while longer at least. And um, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay too. I'm better than okay. And I will say, I, when, I, when I first wrote the essay that my book was based on, the final line was, um, I am not stronger because, and it was a reference, of course, to the line, you know, whatever 
doesn't kill you. I said, I'm not dead, but I am not stronger. Well, it wasn't a great final line, so I took it out. But I remember thinking that. I thought, I'm not stronger. But I was right out of the relationship at that point. And I am stronger now, and I'm very different. But I like myself better. Yeah. Yeah, I never... I have a sharper edge. I usually wouldn't... Before I met Caleb, I wouldn't have been so mean about someone's band. I will be honest. Yeah. But... Um. And I he deserves it. I also can't imagine not knowing you. Like, if none of that had happened to me, I wouldn't know you. Oh, I've made so many good friends from from the Survivor community. Yeah. I remember um, the woman that my abuser abused right before me. We were having this conversation once where, like, I was I was still more in the thick of it at the time. And I was like, I would give anything for that had never to have happened. And she said to me, but then we wouldn't be friends. And I think I said something kind of insensitive, like, that would be okay if we weren't friends because then this wouldn't have happened to me. But, you know, I actually look back on that now and be like, I'm so grateful to her for everything she did for I me. I wouldn't and, change the life I yeah. have now. I'm not saying I would, like, do it again, what I did no. with him. But I wouldn't change the life I have now. I, I would like to hope that it would have happened some other way. But I, I love the life I have now. I feel like I'm living the life I always wanted to live. Not in all ways, but I have a PhD. I have a book published. I'm going to be a professor. And those were things, you know, I grew up in Idaho. I grew up working class. And those were things that I didn't really think were achievable. And when I left my marriage, it was just like everything was in the shitter. And I just decided, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to go after everything I want. And I got almost all of it. Yeah. I'm glad you did. Me too. I was so happy when I heard you got your job. Me too. Yeah. No small feat. Not in this current academic market. No. Are we done? I think so. Dr. Kelly Sunberg, thank you very much for being on No Love Signs. This has been... Not a physician, Dr. Kelly Sunberg. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, this, thank you, Kelly. Thank you so much, Mo. This has been No Love Signs. I'm Mo Davio. The really catchy song you heard at the beginning of this episode was written and produced and performed by Phil Ajarapu, who is a talented musician. Uh, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>